Casey, your gut is on fire. I view this as conceptually similar to having a forest fire. And if you have a forest fire problem, you don't start planting trees. You put the fire out, then move on, plant trees, and rebuild the forest. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. West Palm Beach, Florida, Colorado Springs, Colorado, and Lansing, Michigan. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode five of season five, number 304 overall. And it is a double episode where we will be focusing on ulcerative colitis. Three million people will be diagnosed with a form of irritable bowel disease this year, and that includes many with ulcerative colitis. And those numbers are just getting higher every single year. More and more people are being diagnosed, and that means more and more people are suffering. So what causes this? Why is this happening? And what can help? The Gut Health MD is making a house call to help today. Dr. Will Bolsowitz is here, and we will be opening up the doctor's mailbag. He has the scoop on UC, what foods may help, what foods you may want to avoid, and some other tips to get your gut back on track. And then we'll also be hearing from a woman who was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis way back in the 1990s. And she suffered for years and years. And no matter what treatment she tried, things would only improve but so much. Until finally, finally, after all that time, she found some relief. And it turns out, it was the food. Debbie is here with us to share her powerful story. But before we can get to that, I want to make a very exciting announcement. And that is that the exam room is nominated for vegan podcast of the year by veg news. How cool is that? So please, we would love your support. If you could go over to veg news and vote, we are on page six of the veggie awards category 56. Overall, there's a link to cast your ballot right now in the episode notes. And I cannot thank you. Thank you all enough for your support. It is so powerful to me to know that this show is making a difference, making somebody's world a healthier place. So if you could take a moment to cast that vote over at Veg News for the exam room as vegan podcast of the year, I would greatly appreciate it. So on that note, why slow down now? Let's keep that healthy train rolling right along. And we're going to start our discussion about UC with Dr. Bolsowitz, who has a very special announcement of his own. Let's kick everything off and welcome Dr. Bolsowitz back to the exam room live. My friend, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here today, and I am, I'm grateful for these wonderful people who are here with us today. Let's prescribe some health advice for the good people. And we're going to start with a question from Kiana about ulcerative colitis. She wants to know, Dr. B., what can she eat to help with her ulcerative colitis? 
You know, the challenge when you have ulcerative colitis, and I want to, by the way, um, bring in Crohn's disease as well, because these are what we would describe as inflammatory bowel diseases, IBD. So these inflammatory bowel diseases that include ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, they are inflammatory conditions. Your gut is on fire, all right? And the reason that they're happening is that there has been a disturbance of the gut microbiome. So because of this disturbance within the gut microbiome, your immune system goes on the attack. And the immune system is not actually attacking you. That's not, there's no evidence to support that. Instead, the immune system is attacking your microbiome and the fallout is the damage and harm that is done to your intestines where there's inflammation, there can be ulceration, people can experience bleeding, typically there is diarrhea, um, and they can be dangerous conditions in certain circumstances. So now, how do we eat with these particular conditions? I want to create a separation between the person who has active flaring disease. There is inflammation versus the person who is in remission. Remission means that there is not activity of this disease, that if we look inside the colon, look inside the intestines, we are not going to see any ulceration or damage to the body. All right. So in a person who has active flaring disease, um, the important thing from my perspective as a gastroenterologist is I want to get you into remission. And ultimately, medications may be required in order to accomplish that. I view this as conceptually similar to having a forest fire. Okay. So in the forest fire analogy, the forest is your microbiome. It's lush, it's diverse, it's beautiful, but when it's on fire, it's getting burned and being destroyed. And we need to put the fire out. And if you have a forest fire problem, you don't start planting trees. You put the fire out and then you plant the trees, minimize the damage, put out the fire, then move on, plant trees and rebuild the forest. All right. So in a person who's flaring, they may struggle to process and digest high fiber foods. They may struggle to process and digest raw foods, raw plants. Um, doesn't mean that they're stuck being incapable of consuming these things into the future. But for right now, we have to simplify and make things more gentle and easy for the gut. So we want to start with things that are perhaps low FODMAP and well-cooked. So I'm thinking about soups. Like soups are an excellent place to start because they are already sort of pre-digested in a way. I'm thinking about smoothies. You break down the food partially make it more digestible and easy for your body, easy for your gut. So that's where we want to start. But you want to take yourself and get yourself into remission. And then when we're in remission, the microbiome is the way that we keep ourselves in remission. And the more successful we are at introducing these foods that you have struggled with. So make no mistake, you need these foods. You just may not need them today. It may be more of a long-term goal to reintroduce these foods and bring them back. And so when you get yourself into remission, then you start this process of rebuilding the gut microbiome. You are planting trees. And the way that you do that is by bringing back diversity, but you have to do it slowly. 
slowly reintroduce these foods, pay attention to the feedback you are receiving from your body, allow them to build up over time as your gut becomes stronger. And when you do this, ultimately, you will find your pla- yourself in a place where you are consuming a diverse, abundant, plant-centered diet that is high in fiber, fiber being the key to suppressing the inflammation. And when you do that, you will put yourself into deep remission. And a deep remission is the closest that we can take a person with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease to a cure. When you are in a deep remission, you are not flaring and you're not close to flaring. That's where we want you. Yeah, matter of fact, uh, earlier this week up on the Physicians Committee's YouTube page and uh, or YouTube channel and Facebook page, had an interview with a woman who had had uh, ulcerative colitis for years. I mean, she was diagnosed with this way back in the early 1990s and suffered for like two decades or better. Uh, finally changed the way that she ate and has just seen such a dramatic improvement and now has this feeling like she's reclaimed her life. You know, it worked better than any treatment possible. And it just, it she's starting everything uh, with what's on her plate and that has just paid major, major dividends. Um, Couple of quick follow-ups uh, for you here, Doctor B. You mentioned uh, smoothies uh, being one of the foods that people can try out um, as they're trying to improve their gut health. Here, uh, we always get this question, and you, being the fiber specialist that you are, when you blend up something, uh, you break the foods down to that extent. Does that affect the fiber content? Um, it doesn't affect the fiber content in the sense of like the grams of fiber is the grams of fiber. You don't diminish the number of grams of fiber that exist within the smoothie. You may be biochemically altering the fiber to some degree. And so it could affect things. Let's pretend that you make a smoothie that's like literally all fruit, right? It may affect you where if you were to eat that fruit rather than blending it, it will not spike your blood sugar as much as if you were to put it into a smoothie, puree it, and then consume it, right? And so you're losing some of the protections that you get from the fact that fruit contains fiber and that fiber inherently is a part of sort of the matrix of the food. Um, That, you know, at the end of the day, smoothies are a great way to deliver a variety of plants, the phytochemicals, the polyphenols, the fiber to people who need them and may not uh, be able to tolerate them in other forms or they taste good. And some people, this is the path that leads them into a more plant centered diet. So from my perspective, I celebrate smoothies. I think they're great. And I consume them all the time. Well, in that case, I'm just going to uh, declare this National Smoothie Day, and we should all celebrate it, my friend. <laughs> um, in 30 seconds or less, you also uh, mentioned FODMAPs a little bit earlier. For those who aren't familiar with a FODMAP, what is that? Yeah, uh, big topic, 30 seconds or less. Okay. Um, FODMAPs are the fermentable parts of our food. So like beans contain FODMAPs, um, whole grains like uh, wheat contain FODMAPs, onions, garlic, uh, some fruits. The point being, these are not actually bad things. They're good things and they're actually good for our gut microbiome. But when consumed in excess of the amount that you can tolerate, by the way, lactose is a FODMAP. I don't recommend, like if you have digestive symptoms, get rid of dairy immediately. That's the first thing I would do. But um, 
these things in general, we don't want to get rid of the beans, the garlic, the wheat. We don't want to necessarily get rid of these things. What we want to do is we want to consume the amount that our body is capable of tolerating. So, and I know that you have an announcement at the end of the uh, broadcast that is very relevant to these FODMAPs that we're talking about, Chuck. Oh, that is a good tease. So stay tuned, everybody. Uh, yeah. Uh, by the way, Tofu Tuesday says it's double Dr. B day. She's going to be on the Forks and Knives webinar with you this afternoon, as will Annette. Also want to say hi to Lisa, who's watching right now in San Francisco, and Carol, who is in Tennessee. And I hope I am getting this name right. Kaori, checking all the way in from Zambia today. Uh, which is just fantastic all the way over nice. in Africa. See, raising the health IQs around the world, Dr. B. Love That's it. why I love this show, man. Uh, let's do something here. Take a question from Jackie. Jackie has a good one. Do you need to, quote, eat the rainbow in order to have a healthy gut? I would say so. I would say so. Every single So this um, concept of eating the rainbow has been around for a while, and it's a simple way to kind of take the complexity of nature and bring it into your body in a simple fashion that is so good for you. So every single color that exists in nature actually reflects specific phytochemicals that are in the plants. That's why these plants have these different colors. And many times these are the polyphenols. Polyphenols are antioxidant compounds, meaning that they basically have an anti-inflammatory effect in our body. They can have beneficial effects way beyond that. And you find them in plants. And by the way, polyphenols are also prebiotic. They feed our gut microbiome. So with regard to eating the rainbow, when we opt for all the different colors, we are in inherently choosing to introduce variety and diversity into our diet. And we know that variety and diversity is very important to our gut microbiome. So it's just a great, simple way to approach that. Uh, Celine, how much does microbiome affect our taste buds? So why do our tastes change as we're trying to improve our gut health? I think that they, I, so there's more research to be done in this particular area, but I think actually they affect our taste buds quite a bit. So quick anecdote, just from my personal experience, if you went back 10 years ago, I, um, and I shared on my Instagram, a photo of myself from 10 years ago last night. If you went back 10 years ago, like my favorite meal for a celebration was a ribeye steak and a glass of wine. And what's interesting is that when I changed my diet, I experienced dramatic health benefits. Um, but the thing that I did not expect is that my taste buds changed. And there was this day, Chuck, it was probably like 2015, where I had the worst week ever. I'm going to, I'll spare you the details, but I had the worst week ever at work. And I got to the end of the week, I limped to the finish line. I said, man, you deserve a treat. And I went to a steakhouse and it had been definitely more than a year since I had a steak. There it is. There is my picture from 2012. And um, it was like 2015 and it had definitely been more than a year since I'd had a steak. And it used to be my favorite. And I went to the steakhouse, I ordered the ribeye, it came out and I was like, it smells weird. It tastes different. It's not appetizing to me anymore. I don't, not only am I not craving it, I'm actually turned off by it. 
And so I, uh, I left, I paid my bill. I covered up this stakes cause I didn't want them to ask me questions like, Hey, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Let me cover it up, pay my bill. And I got out of there as quickly as I could. So we actually have studies that suggest that our cravings are in part motivated by our microbiome. You take people who love chocolate and they have demonstrated that the gut microbes in these people who love chocolate are actually producing a chemical that makes them crave that. The other thing along the same lines, a little bit different than just our taste buds, Chuck, but there's actually research to suggest that our pheromones, the way that we smell, and our attraction to others is motivated by the compatibility of our gut microbiome. And they've demonstrated this in like uh, animal models that that these animals choose a partner based upon gut microbiome compatibility and that these microbes actually produce our smell, right? Our pheromones. Um, So like, why do we kiss? This is a preview. I don't know if we're going to be back uh, on Valentine's Day or not, but I'm going to, so I'm going to sneak this one in as a preview for Valentine's (laughs) Day. Why do we kiss? Why do we do that? Why do we express passion or love for another person through that actual act? And the suggestion is that it's actually sharing of microbes. So a hundred million microbes are shared with a good passionate kiss. Why do we high five? They haven't studied this Chuck, but I seriously want, I love high fives. I'm, it's one of my favorite things to do. You ever see me? Give me a high five. You're a high five but guy. I'm a high five kind of guy. I like the top secret high fives. Uh, the really cool ones that go on for like a couple minutes. But <laughs> anyway, uh, why do we high five? I'm convinced that the reason that we shake hands the reason that we high five is human touch and the sharing of microbes that takes place. That's wild. See, that is wild. I was not expecting that detour on the show today. I Girl. love science. It, I mean, just yeah. let's nerd out, man. Nerd out forever. Totally. So good. Uh, and now Dr. Beast for something completely different question from Laura, what causes hiccups and what might help? This is one of the most searched topics on Google. I'm telling you, so many people get the hiccups. So many people have no idea what to do beyond those old wives tales. Yeah. Hiccups are, uh, the reason that it gets searched so much is that people are not finding solutions to their hiccup problem. And I can just tell you from experience with patients that one of the worst things that a person can experience in terms of damaging their quality of life is persistent hiccups. I had a patient once, Chuck, who he was a military veteran and um, he was still in the military when I was taking care of him. This was in Savannah, Georgia. And he literally had persistent hiccups from the minute he woke up to the minute he went to bed for months. And so now what, what causes this? There's a number of issues. This is what makes it challenging is that when you're kind of in these watershed areas between specialties, it's hard to get the medical system to really give you the support that you need because it requires a doctor to actually step up and like try really hard. Um, but uh, hiccups can be related to, to lung issues, to the diaphragm or irritation of the diaphragm. So, and that could come from the lungs, irritation of the diaphragm, but it could also come from the optimum. If you could have a, if you have an abdominal issue, it could irritate the diaphragm. But the most common thing that I come across with hiccups is acid reflux. So where I typically start with my patients is I will treat them for acid reflux and with reliable treatment, try to determine whether or not it improves their hiccups. If I go back to the veteran in Savannah, Georgia, who had these persistent hiccups, this young man 
was suffering to the point that I'm not exaggerating to say that he was suicidal. And we ended up treating him for acid reflux and he got better. Um, so it was a dramatic, dramatic case, dramatic recovery. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm happy for him. I think I saw on the news one time, uh, they had a, a young woman on there who had been suffering for months, uh, if not close to a year. And they were talking about the effect that it had on her life. And this was a live interview and she's hiccuping the whole way through. Uh, funny thing is not once did they talk about her diet during that. And this was a number of years ago. I wasn't really hyper-focused yet on nutrition, but I think it would have stood out to me if they would have really taken a look at what it was that she was eating. It was, it was just a wild, wild interview. I mean, this, this poor girl was in high school at the time and just yeah. had no kind of quality of life. Um, so my heart oh. definitely goes out to them. Uh, let's see if we can turn things around and make people a little bit more happy. Uh, who doesn't like good spices, right? Let's take a question that came in at 1214. Someone is wondering what spices can affect gut health. Many of them. Many of them. Uh, the cool thing about spices is that what you taste, like that sort of powerful, provocative taste, is typically coming from a phytochemical. And the phytochemical is also what happens to provide benefit to you, your health, and potentially your gut microbes. So like take turmeric, for example. Turmeric contains curcumin. All right, curcumin, uh, turmeric is a rhizome. It's in the same family as ginger. And um, term, the turmeric uh, contains the, this phytochemical named curcumin. And curcumin has very powerful anti-inflammatory properties that we believe is also beneficial to the gut microbiome. You know, for example, a person who has ulcerative colitis, one of the things that I would consider in those patients is, this is, by the way, not medical advice. This is just me providing education and speaking about these areas of interest. But um, in those patients, I would consider turmeric supplementation to have that curcumin. It has anti-inflammatory properties. My father was six foot seven. And um, when he was alive, he had horrible arthritis of his knees. And I actually put him on turmeric and he got himself to a point where he was able to avoid surgery for a very long time as a result of that. Get out of town. That's that's incredible. Um, do you know if, if that would improve uh, a number of forms of arthritis, even maybe osteoarthritis? Yeah, it could, it could certainly help with osteoarthritis. Um, uh, what's interesting about turmeric, so you think about curry, right? So a curry will typically contain turmeric. What's interesting is that curries contain other spices as well. Uh, think about, you know, in India, they have this spice blend called garam masala. And every single component of the garam masala has uh, beneficial phytochemicals. Well, with the turmeric, uh, if you take it in combination with black pepper, it actually increases the absorption of the turmeric by 2,000%. That is not me uh, inflating the numbers. That's real. 2,000% better absorption when you sprinkle some black pepper in with your turmeric. So here's the tip for everyone at home. If you're doing turmeric, make sure it includes black pepper. If you're doing curry, make sure it includes black pepper. Boom. There you go. And it's really turmeric is not one of those spices that I find to be particularly overwhelming. Uh, you can subtly add it to a lot of different dishes and it won't affect the flavor too much one way or the other. 
Um, so big fan of it myself. Uh, let's mix it up here. Take a question from Michael. He needs some help. My goodness. At 1213, uh, uh, he says, I'm currently in three days of plant-based eating and the bloating is real. He says, uh, yeah. we're doing a mixture of rice and beans. Be easier. Half of my plate is still greens. Just need to make sure that I eat enough for weightlifting. Oh, Michael, my heart goes out to you, buddy. Yeah. So, all right. So, Michael, here's the scoop. Um, when you transition your diet, anytime you have to understand your gut microbiome three days ago was designed for whatever the dietary pattern that you previously had was, right? And it was very efficient at good and good at dealing with that particular type of dietary pattern. Doesn't mean that that dietary pattern was in your best health interest. It just means your gut microbes were adapted to it. Well, you're making a change. And making a change in your diet requires these microbes to change as well. And they need an opportunity to catch up. And the harder that you push in an all-at-once type of move, the more of a strain or stress you will put on these microbes to try to keep up with something that they're quite simply not prepared for. So I, I got the idea based upon the way that you framed the question that you're a person who's into fitness. This is like going to the gym. You wouldn't go to the gym on January 1st and slap like, you know, the heaviest weights in there all on the rack and then go for it. That's how you hurt yourself. You would go on January 1st and you would start by easing into it and finding what your body is capable of doing. And once you know what you're capable of doing, you start to push it. You start to push it. And what you find is by pushing it at the gym, you build strength. And by provoking, by, by basically challenging yourself, the challenge leads to strength. So when you transition to a plant-based diet, you want to ease your body into this. And you, go, you can go too hard too fast like this and experience a lot of gas and bloating because your microbiome is not prepared for what you have asked it to do. So the flip side is to go a lot easier. Cooked foods. We talked about soups, right? Cooked foods starches because starches will help to maintain the caloric intake that you need, particularly as a guy, we need more calories because we're bigger people, generally speaking. So starches, and then look at foods that contain fat, which will be higher calorie plant foods, but that's something that you need right now to make sure that you're getting an adequate amount of calories as you're making a transition. So like, for example, avocados, seeds, nuts, things like that. Man, the chat room, they they love some science. Steven uh, flat out just says, uh, love science. Annette, we produce a chemical that drives our cravings. Wow, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I also want to say uh, hi to Ayad, who is tuning in from Tangier, Morocco. That's definitely a new one. I'm going to put a pin in the map for that one. That's pretty cool. Uh, but let's take a question from Lydia, who is tuning in from Montreal, Dr. B. Um, see if we can get her some help. Generally speaking here, she says she's struggling with gastritis. The doctor put me on PPI med meds. Uh, she says that she's vegan, wants to know what she may be able to eat to find some help though. It's a good question. So hello, Lydia. Uh, I grew up about two and a half hours south of you. If you drove straight south into New York, you would find where I lived, um, Route 87. So Montreal's a great city. Love that place. Um, you know, in, in terms of what you need to do with gastritis, ultimately gastritis is a bit complex because there's a number of different things that can potentially contribute to this. And it's a little hard given the information for me as a GI doctor to say, oh, this is what it is, go do that. What I will say is this, 
gastritis can be related to motility, stomach acid production, sensitivity of the nerves. And in order to maintain these things, motility, stomach acid production, sensitivity of the nerves, we want a balanced diet that supports a healthy gut microbiome. Ultimately, the gut microbiome are the stewards of our digestive health. And so we want to fuel them. So my focus would be on moving towards a more plant predominant diet that is diverse. That's where we would want to ultimately go. But it is a process that may require you to work with a registered dietitian or be a bit meticulous in terms of keeping track of what foods you're eating and how they make you feel. Because ultimately, if a food makes you feel unwell, it doesn't mean that we eliminate it. But we want to be conscious. We want to build consciousness of the food choices that we're making and how they make us feel so that we can moderate where we need to. And that way, as you move along, you are building strength within that gut microbiome and allowing yourself to get to a place where you have the motility, the stomach acid production, where um, your stomach is as healthy as it can possibly be because you have a good microbiome. That's where you want to be. Let's go back to uh, turmeric here for a second. Uh, Jesse's asking about it. Brooke is asking about it. Anna is asking about it. So how much turmeric do you recommend somebody eat every day? Oh, gosh. Chuck, I don't remember the exact numbers in terms of milligrams for supplementation. So I would have to actually dig into the medical literature to give an answer to that. Um, but my experience is that, so it depends, like if you're treating a specific medical issue, you may want to talk to your doctor about it. You may want to look into this in more detail and talk to your, talk to your doctor after you look into it. But in terms of like the routine person who's taking turmeric supplementation, here's what I do. I actually, I go to the store and I get the golden milk spice blend, which includes turmeric plus a couple other spices, including black pepper, right? And I love spice blends because I feel like I am giving a gift to my microbiome. And each day you see, I have this, this water bottle here. Well, it's not just water. I actually make myself a little concoction that includes a greens powder. I'm not trying to replace salads. Don't you worry. I'm not trying to replace salads, but I do do a greens powder with some turmeric. That's my, my golden milk spice blend, some ashwagandha, some, some maca, right? And I put that in here. I bring it to work and I love it. I feel great. It energizes me. Um, so that's what I personally do. And I probably use about a teaspoon of it per day. There you go. Um, let's change it up a little bit. Take a question from Natalie at 1229. A lot of people wonder this. They count the number of plants that they eat every day, the different varieties you want to get to as high a number as possible. It's kind of like a little bit of a game. Natalie, though, is wondering, do different forms of the same food, for example, cherry and Roma tomatoes, count as separate plants? Yeah. Uh, Natalie, hello. Thank you. I love this question. So, you know, Chuck, if you go back to Fiber Fueled, my, my first book that came out in May of 2020, I introduced the idea of plant points. And this is just my way of gamifying this. So I think that eating should be fun. We should look forward to mealtimes. We shouldn't live in fear of our food. We shouldn't feel that there's rigid rules that are stressing us out. That's not what it's about. Um, so plant points is just my cheeky, fun way of us focusing on dietary diversity at every meal. You get a point for every single plant. Now, what has happened is that people have exposed these sort of like watershed gray area questions of, 
Does this count as a plan point? Does that count as a plan point? And I want people to understand that at the end of the day, dietary diversity is where you want to be. Okay. And so I would never exclude dietary diversity on whether or not you get a plant point, right? And consistency is important, but this is just meant to be fun. So don't be too rigid or strict about the rules of what is or is not a plant point. Certainly don't get into a shouting match or hopefully not a fist fight over what qualifies as a plant point with your friends, because this is just meant to be fun. But to answer this question, Roma tomatoes, like one tomato versus another type of tomato. If they're different species of tomatoes, then that's two plant points. If it's the same species of tomato, but different colors, I don't, I want to call that different plant points. Uh, we still have people tuning in from all over the world. I see Scotland is in here. Israel is in here. By the way, Joe from Scotland uh, says, uh, love the Snickers bites that you talked about on the previous show, the three ingredient Snickers bites. By the way, those are a hit in this household as well. Those things are so, so good. Um, I believe that that recipe was in fiber fueled and um, hint, hint, uh, there may be more recipes coming. So stay tuned for that. Um, let's take a question. recipes coming and there may be more recipes relevant to that specific recipe that you just mentioned, Chuck. We will continue. We'll come back to this again towards the end of the program. Okay. Now you done threw the teas my way and my I'm, I'm all in for this now. Uh, but before we get to that, let's take a question from Carol. She is wondering whether freezing fruits and vegetables can kill the all important microbiome. Gosh, that's a great question. I don't, I haven't seen a good study to answer that question. I wish that I had, cause it's such a good one. So I thank you, Carol, for asking that. Um, Here's what I would say. This is this is the important thing, okay? There are microbes that exist on our food. There's a number of different ways that you can process your food that will remove those microbes. Um, you know, if you cook something, you are removing the microbes. So, you know, that doesn't diminish the quality and value of the food. And I don't believe that the only way to eat your food is raw. I don't believe that to be true. I think that it is good to have some of your food raw. I don't think that all food needs to be raw. And so to answer this question, I, I don't think that I would shy away from frozen food. You know, the other thing to bear in mind, there's a lot of places in this country where fresh food, fresh produce is not readily available. Um, but frozen produce is. And frozen produce is often more cost efficient for people who need that. And that's a great thing. And I fully support that. And you shouldn't feel bad in the least because guess what? Guess who's eating frozen uh, vegetables on a routine basis? This guy. So um, the, uh, the point from my perspective is that we want a diverse, abundant diet and it's okay to cook. It's okay to freeze. It's great to eat raw. All these things. Just it's okay. Uh, let's see here. A question from Charmaine. Can stress still cause an ulcer if you are eating a healthy diet? The idea of stress causing ulcers is very interesting. The majority of ulcers in the United States, Chuck, are caused by one of two, uh, one of two things. It's not to say these are the only two, but the majority are caused either through the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. This is number one. So we're talking about things like ibuprofen, naproxen, over-the-counter pain medicines. Um, Tylenol is not included in that for what that's worth. And um, so that's the number one cause. The number two cause is a bacteria that can live in the stomach called H. pylori. So these are the top two. Now, 
Stress and ulcers. Does stress cause ulcers? Well, I know that stress affects the gut microbiome. That's very clear. And if you affect the microbiome, I could definitely see where that would have an effect on the function of your gut that could result in an ulcer. The origin of this idea of stress causing ulcers, because if you went back to before you and I were born, Chuck, this was thought to be the number one cause of ulcers. And that actually, it's interesting from a historical perspective. It goes back to World War II and a research study that was done in London when London was getting bombed by the Germans. And they found an increased prevalence of ulcers during this period of time. Now, are the ulcers literally due to stress in that setting? Could it be that their diet was restricted because they're getting bombed and they don't have the ability to go and get food on a routine basis in the way that they would under normal circumstances? Are there other changes, disturbances of their sleep because there's bombs being dropped? You know, clearly there's other things that could potentially be in play. So it's, it's you know, we're going back to old school research from the 1940s that if you, if you take that research and you try to publish it in 2022, it probably doesn't go very far um, because there's too many questions that are unresolved. So end of the day, the short of it, the short answer is I do think that stress can cause an ulcer, um, but I think it's a little more complicated than what we saw in that original study in 1945. All right. And let's uh, grab two more here really quickly before we uh, talk about that big, exciting announcement. Uh, 1211. Let's rewind the chat by a half hour. 1211. Mommy Vegan Nummy. Wondering whether alcohol or coffee can kill beneficial bacteria. We think that coffee actually is good for the beneficial bacteria. In fact, um, there's a research study done. So, Chuck, I know that you're familiar, but many of the listeners may not be. I'm on the scientific advisory board for a company called Zoe, and it's a personalized nutrition company. And we do really, I mean, honestly, quite powerful nutrition studies uh, published in the top medical journals. And there was a, a study published in Nature Medicine almost a year to the day in January of 2021, where the number one food in association with a change in the gut microbiome was coffee. In other words, if you were a habitual coffee drinker, it was very reproducible that you would have specific changes in your gut microbiome. And these were changes that we would describe as beneficial. We think the reason why is that coffee contains polyphenols like chlorogenic acid. And these polyphenols, it's a bit of a theme for today that we've been talking about. They, they escape digestion in the small intestine, arrive in the colon intact, and they actually have a beneficial effect on our gut microbiome. So polyphenols are prebiotic. Coffee contains prebiotics. The problem with coffee is not the coffee. It's the stuff we add to it. That's the issue. Now, alcoholic drinks. If you look at people who drink red wine, red wine contains resveratrol. That resveratrol is also a polyphenol, a uh, number of health benefits to it, also prebiotic. So you will see that people who consume red wine, they, there are some changes that I would describe as beneficial to the gut microbiome. Here's the issue. You drink yourself to the point that you have a hangover. I am convinced that the hangover is you causing acute harm to your gut microbiome. So if alcohol is consumed, it should be in moderation, but I am not encouraging consumption of alcohol for the purposes 
of enhancing the gut microbiome because alcohol is a carcinogen. Um, so by the way, full disclosure, I do consume alcohol occasionally. Uh, so I don't want it to sound like I'm being hypocritical here. Uh, I'm just saying like, we have to have an understanding of what this is. And so, and resveratrol is not just a red wine thing. Resveratrol comes from the red grapes. You can find it in a number of other foods, including peanuts. Peanuts have resveratrol. So snack some, snack on some peanuts. Oh man, who doesn't like a good, you know, handful of peanuts, man. You got to be careful with those things. They are so addictive. I'm one of those guys that, I mean, if there's peanuts in the house, that's, that's kind of a danger thing, man. I'll do peanut butter and I can be okay with that. But if there are just peanuts around, I get a little bit dicey. Love them so much. Um, which actually leads to an important final question for today. It comes in at 1225. It's from Laura of Fitness. And before I ask this, I will say that uh, an estimated 3% of people will suffer from a binge eating disorder in their lifetime. That's according to the National Institutes of Mental Health. So a lot of people probably could use some help from this one. And Laura Fitness's question at 1225 is, how does binge eating affect the gut? Uh, there was a study. So, you know, binge eating is its own condition. It is an eating disorder, uh, according to the DSM-5 criteria. It's a bit different than anorexia, where anorexia is a hyper-restricted pattern of eating. And binge, binge eating is sort of the um, impulsive, overwhelming, aggressive consumption of food, um, so often followed by purging. I have not, Chuck, seen a good study in terms of the effect of binge eating on the microbiome. And I, I do expect, this is just me speculating, just to be upfront and clear about this. I haven't seen a study on it, but I would fully expect that we would see changes in the gut microbiome in people who binge eat, that they would not be something that we would describe as beneficial, that it would be out of balance. Uh, the word that we use is dysbiosis. And it's, I think it's actually very possible that the microbiome is in part connected to the manifestation of binge eating. Again, I don't know this to be true, so please don't take it as such. This is me speculating from an expert perspective based upon everything that I've seen. We do have data from the University of North Carolina where they have a great, uh, like a very well-respected eating disorder clinic that I actually used to work with when I was a GI doctor there. And um, they studied people who have anorexia and discovered that there was deep disturbance of the gut microbiome. Now, speaking from my clinical experience, people that have disordered eating patterns of any variety, they um, struggle with digestive issues. It's almost 100%. And in the process of trying to heal their digestive issues, I think it's very important to pay attention not just to the food that you're eating, but to actually directly addressing the disordered eating pattern. That's part of healing the gut. I would say the same thing this, to a person who's been the victim of trauma or abuse. We have to address the trauma and the abuse. We have to address the disordered eating pattern in order to get you, to lift you to a place of proper health throughout your whole body in order to allow your gut to heal properly. So, um, a bit of a long answer, Chuck, but one of the things that I will say is when it comes to, so I am 
very sensitive to people that have disordered eating patterns. I take care of them in my clinic routinely. I've been affected uh, uh, in my personal life by people who have had disordered eating patterns. I'm very sensitive to these issues. And um, uh, one of the things that I would say is that one of the things that I like about the approach that I preach is like, I don't want people to overly fixate on their food. Um, but at the end of the day, I want to heal your relationship with food because people who have disordered eating have a broken relationship. They have a, they have a broken relationship with their food and we have to bring them back together because we all have to eat in order to thrive and live our best lives. And so one of the things that I love about the dietary pattern that I propose is that it's not about restriction or avoidance or making you fearful of your food. It's about finding love and gravitating to things that you enjoy and abundance and variety and getting rid of restrictions. So um, that's one of the things that I feel really good about with the work that I'm doing. So, yeah. And, and as somebody who personally has suffered from it, uh, I definitely had binge eating, uh, not the purging. And that's how I got up to 420 pounds. I mean, I was a fast food addict. I mean, famously, I tell the story, I could not go a single day without dropping $20 at Taco Bell. Um, my relationship with food has completely changed, and I don't think it takes a, a doctor to tell you that my gut health has dramatically improved since that relationship with food has changed. I'm eating all kinds of different foods now, and my gut does not have anywhere uh, near the same type of issues as it once did. Like, I got a healthy gut now. You know, I'm not spending uh, so much time in the bathroom, you know, in agony. Um, you know, making deals with God if the pain will just stop. Like I was bargaining with God just to get the pain to stop, but it never did because I kept fueling that with Taco Bell and pizza and all those unhealthy things that were putting me in that unhealthy position. So uh, yeah, maybe more research is needed, man. But uh, I think that there is a huge, huge, huge connection there. Um, and uh, before we get to the announcement, uh, Holly up in uh, Tecumseh, Ontario says, uh, thank you both for for doing these live podcasts and taking questions. She says this is her first time attending live and she is so excited to be here. So uh, I'm, I'm happy that Holly is here. Thank you so much for being here. Now, big announcement time. Big announcement time. You have the long-awaited follow-up to the book that is over your shoulder right now is coming out soon. What is your big announcement, Dr. B? Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so excited to tell you that I've been working very hard behind the scenes. You you couldn't see it in 2021, but I was hard at work creating something that I honestly believe is very special. So I've created the follow-up to Fiber Fuels, and uh, it is a cookbook, except it's actually so much more than a cookbook. So just to put this into perspective... There are 125 recipes in this book, all right, created by Alex Caspero, who is the registered dietitian who created the recipes for my first book, Fiber Fueled. If you liked that food, you will love this food, all right? So 125 recipes, full color photos. You can see some of the photos on the cover right there. Um, and there, it's a beautiful book, which I think is great. But here's the thing. Chuck, these people, they come in and they see me in my clinic. They're sitting across the room from me. And they're desperate for solutions. 
And I know that the food that I could put into a cookbook is not going to be tolerated by a very large percentage of my patients. And that's not fair. And where is the cookbook for these people who suffer with food intolerances? Where is the methodology that they can apply to their digestive issues to heal, get back to loving their food and tolerate it without any pain to get back to enjoying it? It's time to level the playing fields. It's time to bring the joy back with our food. It's time for us all to be able to sit around the table together and not have one person who's not able to participate because their gut health problem is holding them back. So the Fiber Fields Cookbook, which is coming out May 17th and is available for pre-order now, is the book that's going to do this. It's an entire book, 11 chapters. Uh, I, I went way overboard in writing. Um, I think I caught my publisher by surprise because they thought I was just going to turn in some recipes and some pictures, and I wrote a book. <laughs> And so basically, you're essentially getting a book and a half because it brings together the best of a cookbook, 125 recipes, full color. But it also has this entire methodology that is not in my first book. By the way, they're all brand new recipes except for two. We can talk about that in a second. But brand new recipes, but a methodology built into the cookbook, protocols built into the cookbook that if you simply read it and you follow through on what I teach, I honestly think this is going to change people's lives. Yeah, well, they're not just recipes. If you if you go to Amazon to make the pre-order, and by the way, there should be a link right now for you to pre-order the book in the uh, show description. So go ahead and click on that. Reserve your copy today. Um, the, the description there says that they are irresistible recipes, and I'm sure that they are. And then it, it goes on to say that there's a lemon lentil salad in there, cheesy broccoli potato soup. Here we go. Maple peanut granola hello. And then you got to tell me about the chocolate cookie milk. We don't need the recipe. We can't divulge everything. Just tell me if it tastes good, Dr. B. Oh my gosh, it tastes so good. And you know, there are there are wonderful desserts, right? Like Mexican hot Mexican hot chocolate brownies, which are made with black beans. Yo. There are wonderful main courses. Um, so like I love uh East Asian food. So like there's a tofu banh mi. Um, there is uh like you know, Nashville hot chicken. We have Nashville not chicken. <laughs> if you like spicy, it's there. Um, so the recipes are completely off the charts. It's going to blow people away as a standalone cookbook without the methodology and the gut health knowledge that I share. I think this would be a great book, but I think that's so next level because for, if you or pers a person, you know, is suffering with food intolerances, they need this book. They're never going to get it from their doctor. And the things that you're being sold on the internet are fake. This is the real thing. So I'm very excited about the potential. My wife actually thinks this is a better book than Fiber Fueled. And um, real quick, we mentioned this before. So we were talking about the uh, the Snickers Bites. For people who are not familiar, here's a free recipe. <laughs> Snickers Bites, you take a date, open up the date, and you wipe a schmear of your favorite nut butter, whatever that may be, in the middle of the date, and then you drop some dark chocolate chips on top. Okay. And if you want some sesame seeds, uh, taste like a Snickers bar. If you doubt me, try it and then come back and let me know what you think. 
But this pop, this uh, recipe, Chuck, was so popular with fiber fuels. Like people freaked out about the Snickers bites. So I was like, you know what? We're bringing them back and <laughs> multiplying them. So there are now four different varieties of Snickers bites. Biome broth, super popular. People are freaking out about biome broth. I get like literally every day people are posting biome broth and tagging me. Guess what? Biome broth, broth is not only back. There are seven varieties of biome broth in this book. So I can't wait to blow you guys away with this book. I think you're going to absolutely love it. And pre-ordering is uh, actually quite helpful right now because it makes sure that we have an adequate supply of books for people who want them when the book actually goes live. So if you get a chance to pre-order, you guys, I really would be grateful if you would. I got my pre-order in, and uh, once it gets here, I'm going to promptly ship it down to you. I'm going to ask you kindly to autograph it, and then if you could send it on back, you know that would be fantastic. I might fly up to Virginia and show up at your house to sign that, Chuck. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, you could do that, but I don't live in Virginia, so good luck. Um, oh, once, shoot, Maryland. Sorry. But anyway. just, yeah, man, just a little bit north of that. Uh, but yeah, man, that is, that is super exciting. I know that uh, you have been working on this for so long in the background, and you and I have talked about this, and I know that this is a project that you are super passionate about, as you said, and one that you should be proud of because it is going to help so many people and deliciously at that man so i i'm excited when is the release date by the way may 17th may 17th the book comes out yep there it is man i don't want to wait till may 17th man but uh get the get the pre-orders in it is uh i'm i'm thinking i'm knowing that this is definitely going to well be worth the wait i i just can't wait for this man yeah, thank you everyone for coming and hanging out with Chuck and I today. I'm always grateful for the activity in the chat box. You guys are awesome. And it's just been a privilege to be here every month with you, Chuck. I really am grateful. Be sure to reserve your copy of the Fiber Fueled Cookbook. And there is a link to do that in the episode notes. It is so much fun for me when Dr. B comes on the show. It is playtime in all honesty. We are learning and we are having fun together. And I cannot wait until I get my copy of the Fiber Fueled Cookbook here in Maryland. <laughs> okay, let's shift our focus back to ulcerative colitis now. In just a moment, we will be hearing from a woman who suffered for years, decades even. And I spoke a little bit about Debbie earlier in the show and with Dr. B as well. And Debbie was able to triumph over this horrible condition and finally get her life back. Now, some quick background about ulcerative colitis if you're not too familiar with it yet. UC causes irritation and inflammation and even ulcers in the large intestine. It's not a pretty thing. And more and more people, as I said at the top of the show, are suffering from it. Get this. In 1999, there were an estimated 2 million people who were diagnosed with some form of IBD, including ulcerative colitis. But as of 2015, so we're talking just 16 years later, that 2 million became 3 million. And it's only going to continue to climb. So there are a lot of people in need of help. There are a lot of people in need of hope. And Debbie, who was able to triumph, she will be able to deliver that help and that hope and a dose of inspiration.
Debbie, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. I'm glad that you're here too, because this is the very first time that we have spoken with somebody who has had ulcerative colitis and really seen a dramatic improvement here on the show. It's come up a time or two uh, when we've had gastroenterologists on, especially Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Uh, he and I have talked about it a little bit, but never from a patient perspective. So how long ago was it that you were first diagnosed with ulcerative colitis? I was diagnosed July of 1990. I was 23 years old, so I'm almost 55. It was 31 and a half years ago. And I suffered for many years, and then I became plant-based. All right. And I've been doing great. All right. So there's a, there's a lot there. I, I mean, you yes. summarized that beautifully, but let's <laughs> dive into the details. So okay, let's 1990, go. You're, you're, you said you were in your early 20s, mid-20s at that point? I was 23, yes. 23. I was, mm-hmm. And I had been having symptoms for, you know, six months, a year before I was finally diagnosed. And, um, yeah. and it was a long route after that. So let's let's just put that out there if you're comfortable with it. When you say symptoms, talk to us a little bit about what it was that you were experiencing. Okay, Honestly, ulcerative colitis is basically bloody diarrhea and severe abdominal pain, mostly left lower quadrant for me, a lot of urgency, and just using the restroom 10, 20, 30 times a day. And in your mid, early 20s, 23, I, I, can't 23. Im- I cannot imagine that that was anything that you were expecting. It was not. I had never known anyone with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, no one in my family, and I actually didn't even know anyone who had the disease. Um, but I ended up going to, a, I went to a GI doctor and they told me I had irritable bowel syndrome. Um, I was actually in medical school at the time. So I went to the library and I looked up irritable bowel syndrome and it said you shouldn't have blood. So I knew that was incorrect. So I went back and had a scope and I was um, diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. What ran through your head the first time you had a flare up? I would think that that would scare, I mean, pardon the pun, it would scare the crap out of me. What was that like for you? You know, when it first started, I would have symptoms four or five days and it would get back to normal. And I kept thinking, did I eat something? Um, You know, it was like on and off for about a year. But at the very end, when I was finally diagnosed, I weighed um, under 100 pounds, uh, you know, 10 pounds lighter than I am now, maybe. And um, I had just very weak, a lot of pain. Um, I couldn't eat. So I learned that even before I was diagnosed, I learned that when I ate, it really made me use the restroom. And so I would just not eat all day and then only eat at night. And then I would only drink during the day, you know, water. And then I could only eat at night. Did that help Because my symptoms would be brought on. Okay. So only eating at night though, even though that was just once a day, would your symptoms be triggered by that one meal? No, I seem to have, mo- personally, I seem to have most of my symptoms in the morning. So I realized that if I didn't eat all day after that, I seemed to be okay or better at least. So I could function during the day. Yeah. And I would and, imagine like being 23, that's probably also not a struggle that you would be really keen to share with your friends, right? No, I was horrified to tell you the truth, especially after I was diagnosed, you know, for I have this diagnosis, I was worried is am I going to be able to get married, have children? I mean, it was definitely a thought in my mind. Um, after that, am I going to be able to have a career? So mm. all those things you know, were hard. going through my mind. And I didn't tell anyone. I think I told like one of my friends, girlfriends, I just, 
I was embarrassed. It's, a, it's embarrassing. They are embarrassing symptoms to have. So it's not something um, that you want to talk about. And I think things have changed. You know, now everyone talks about mental health and their illness. Everyone's very open. But back in 1990, you know, it was before the internet. And I think people weren't very open about things. No, 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 uh, definitely not. Not not a, that day and age. And I think even though by and large as a society, we've made a lot of progress as far as being more open and accepting of certain things. But I would think even today's 23-year-old might struggle with, hey, everybody, I've got ulcerative colitis. You know, it's right. not exactly something they would be tweeting or putting up on their Instagram or TikTok. Right. You know, it's it's not exactly the most fun topic. Right. Um, so Definitely. what kind of foods were you eating at this point? Were you eating that standard Western American diet? Um, no, you know, I've never been a big standard American diet. Um, I, I was, you know, I feel like my mom uh, taught me to be relatively healthy, but I still ate a lot of milk products. I mean, I didn't eat fast food. I was never a fast food person. I did eat a lot of vegetables, but I ate a lot of cheese. Um, during this time, I realized like I had a lot of grilled cheese sandwiches. Just cheese sandwiches seemed to just, you know, be what I needed. So I, um, but no, I was never the standard American McDonald's type of person. Um, I thought I ate relatively, I thought at that time I was eating relatively healthy. How's that? I, th that, I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, if I were you, I mean, pre, you know, uh, plant-based nutrition knowledge here, uh, I would think the same thing as you did. I mean, what you described is not, in all honesty, the worst diet that I've ever heard right. in my entire life, right? So like for me, I was eating 10,000 calories of fast food all day, every day, yeah. right? So like that was my thing. But what you're describing, I mean, it just sounds kind of normal to me. So like, I'm just, why is it that somebody who was in my position didn't get that? And then here you are eating a normal ish diet who is struggling. It doesn't exactly seem fair to me. Well, I have some theories. I do think, um, if you want to hear my theories, I do oh, think ultra class is genetic. Um, in some ways they've died. They found 118 or so genes I've read. So I do think it is genetic, but I think there's something in the environment that triggers it. And, um, my personal theory right now, if you would like to know, is um, there's something called MAP, Mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis. And they're a physician in uh, London or a group in London, and they're called the Crohn's MAP vaccine. And they think that there's a small mycobacterium and it causes Yoni's disease in cows. And that's like a Crohn's disease in cows. So I personally think it's all over our environment. And I think it's in meat and dairy. But I do think the plant-based diet, um, it, you're A, eliminating the meat and dairy, and B, you're improving your microbiome to make your, your gut bacteria healthier. So I, I do think it's a combo. I mean, I do think there is maybe something out there causing this. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know much about what it was that you described. I mean, we can certainly try to delve a little bit deeper <laughs> in there for you. But um, let me let me ask you this. What course of action was prescribed by your doctor at that point? Okay, so when I first was diagnosed, I was put on sulfasalicine, which is a common drug with sulfa in it. It's, you know, a basic drug. There were no biologics like Humira and Remicade back then. So I actually had an allergic reaction to that. And so then I was put on a trial study for mesalamine. Um, it was Asacol when it came out. Um, I was living in Kansas City, and I was on that drug for about a year with steroids, and I did pretty well. 
Um, and then I moved to St. Louis for my residency. So I went off the study and I had a pretty bad first year. All my symptoms came back. So that medication was actually helpful for me. And I stayed on that medication, which was Asacol, um, for 25 years. I did have a lot of breakthroughs. So um, I learned that for me, they recommend four to six tablets a day. I learned that for me, I needed 12 to just be stable. So I would take 12 a day. I would tell them I was taking that much. And then if I felt a flare coming on, started having symptoms, I would start popping 20, 24 a day. Um, and sometimes that would keep me out of a flare. And sometimes I would have a flare up. And um, when I would have a flare up, um, these symptoms would last weeks and just get worse and worse. And I would usually then take them um, as soon as I could, I would take a course of steroids. Um, which was a tapering dose over four to six weeks. And sometimes after that, I would have to restart again that course of steroids if my symptoms came back. So even though I was, I would say I was relatively controlled for 25 years with medication. Um, I was hospitalized a few times. Um, I did terrible during both my pregnancies because I went off my medication. Um, but I, I feel like I was well controlled, but I was always on the verge, always on the verge of like having something bad happen. I would travel with pills and always nervous about, um, you know, when a flare would start again. How frustrating was that for you, even though you were able to manage it as best as you could, being a doctor, right? And doctors want to search for the cure. Um, and for you, it just wasn't happening. I mean, you were just saying you were taking sometimes two dozen pills a day just to manage this. And, and you're in your residency. And obviously, you know, medicine and still, still you're struggling with this. That must have been the most frustrating thing in the world. It was frustrating. It was frustrating, but I always felt like um, I always had a goal that I wanted to just, for instance, the ultrasound tech where I was doing my residency, she had ulcerative colitis and worked. She was in her fifties. And I always thought, I want to be like her. I want to be able to have a life and work and have a family. And that was just really important to me. So it was frustrating, but I think I always had a goal. And when I had someone to look up to, even though I never told her because I didn't want to tell her I had ulcerative colitis too, but she was open about it. I always felt like I had a role model and I always felt there was, I think I had a lot of hope. Did you pick her brain? Like what, what are you eating today? What's your diet like? No, because this is the crazy thing. No one has ever, ever told me or told, you know, they just give you medication. I'm not, trying. No one ever said what I would eat would have any effect on my ulcerative colitis. They usually would say, don't eat a lot of fiber when you're going through a flare. So go do a low fiber diet, but not one person ever mentioned diet. So in about 2007, I was having multiple flares and I went on azathioprine and I actually had a mild pancreatitis. So it's a medication. Um, and and that was when I started searching the internet and I came across the, um, it's called the, um, I'm blanking on the name, the um, carbohydrate specific diet. You can edit that. Carbohydrate specific diet. And that's a low carb diet. And then I also um, came across being gluten free. So I have been actually gluten free since 2007, but I try the carbohydrate specific diet, which is where you eliminate, you know, white carbohydrates, so white rice, potatoes, but you can, and then that also eliminates, and white flour, so it also eliminates all um, cookies, cakes, you know, all processed foods, and I would do better, but I was still having um, flare-ups, so I, you know, didn't really stay on that, but that eliminates um, fruit, 
mm. for, you know, and so it's a published, um, it's in, out in the internet that it helps a lot of people. Um, I, and then I went gluten free in 2007, as I say. So no one ever mentioned, that was on my own research. No one ever in all the years, and I go in all the time, has ever mentioned anything about diet to me. And I don't know why I wasn't even really searching, except, you know, at that point for changes. But then it seemed like, okay, if this is food going through, you know, my body, then food must have some effect on my colon. Um, but so. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. So like now some pieces are starting to fall into place for you. Um, even though nobody has mentioned nutrition, uh, being a component here, um, the light bulb just seems like you're describing the light bulb just kind of goes off one day. How did you stumble across the idea of, well, maybe, maybe if we took meat out of the diet, maybe if we took dairy out of the diet, maybe if we gravitated toward a plant-based diet, I might find some relief there. No, I didn't do that. I will tell you my story. I was going on vacation and I like to read on a Kindle. So I was looking for some books and I came across Dr. Greger's How Not to Die. And I read How Not to Die on the plane. And it intrigued me. It had nothing to do with my ulcerative colitis because with ulcerative colitis, you have an increased risk of colon cancer. And my dad had Parkinson's, my mom's dad had Parkinson's. And I really read that book immediately I just became intrigued. Then I read the China study and then um, I read Eat to Live. I watched, um, right after that, I watched Forks Over Knives, What the Health. Since then I've watched Game Changers. And I, like within that week, like literally, so literally I just thought this makes sense to me for a health reason. I wasn't even thinking about my ulcerative colitis. I stopped my Diet Coke immediately. I never had another Diet Coke and I was a minimum of four cans a day Diet Coke. Um, I never had another piece of meat or fish. I stopped dairy immediately. And so within a week, I did this based on this book. I'm, I guess you could say I was extreme for my husband. But um, and then so I just did it for my health. And it just seemed also real. Um, T. Colin Campbell talking about how increased, you know, meat was causing increased cancer. And it all just made sense to me about eating, you know, everything you eat, in my opinion, has, uh, which I learned has phytonutrients. And so when you're eating, you're just, it's not just for the vitamin C in your orange, it's filled with so many phytonutrients we don't, that we don't even know. So it became just something I wanted to do for my own health. And then I noticed, and I, I was just thinking back, I don't remember when I went off my medicine, but I started noticing I would never have like the symptoms that a flare was going to start, it just never happened. And so then I said, I'm just going to stop taking my medicine and see what happens. And I have been off, you know, so that was five years ago. So I don't know how long I waited. I would say it was less than six months, but I, I just don't even know to tell you the truth. So I haven't taken one pill since that time. Wow. Wow. So you, you just kind of lucked into this. Um, yes, completely lucked into it. I didn't do it for the ulcerative class. I That wasn't even ever on my mind because in his book, well, I don't remember him talking about it. It was more for the cancer, heart disease, diabetes. I thought, I, I want to live a long time and I want to be healthy. I've always been the same weight. It was never, I didn't actually lose any weight on this diet or gain or I call it a lifestyle, not a diet, um, because people think when you call it a diet that you're trying to lose weight. So I call it my lifestyle. <laughs> um, 
but I never, um, anyway. <laughs> I got you. I got you. So, I mean, you, you've made a lot of improvements. The thing that kind of makes me laugh, though, is that when you would have flare-ups previously, uh, you were told to eat a diet that was very low in fiber. And then obviously right. a plant-based diet, I mean, it is a fiber bomb yes. and you're yes. still not having any issues. That's kind of funny, isn't it? Yes. I think, I mean, I've learned so much, but I think just eating so many different foods and legumes and nuts just increases the fiber that your bacteria in your gut likes to eat. And it increases the good bacteria and decreases the bad bacteria. And they have been, um, there have been studies that show that people with Crohn's and colitis have um, a, a, a abnormal bacteria load as compared to healthy people and that we have a lot of a lower, we have a lot of bad bacteria and normal people have more high, uh, good bacteria. Uh, you know, I'm kind of wondering here, um, I, because you're, you're so, you seem so healthy now and you haven't had any of these issues. Like, have you gone back and spoken with your own doctor who was helping you kind of manage this and was giving you your prescriptions? And I, I would just love to know what their thought yeah. is. So my, I went to my regular internist and I told her and she was super intrigued and she started right at the same time she started helping her patients. Most of her patients, she said, were diabetic. Um, she was advertising. It was actually on her, like when she would give you handouts at the end, it was saying, eat less meat, eat more fruits and vegetables. But I, I feel like I want to tell everyone. I mean, it's been so amazing for me. And I, oh, I forgot to tell you, my daughter has Crohn's disease. So that's another thing. So my daughter was diagnosed with Crohn's disease in her senior year of high school. And this was prior to me going plant-based also. She went vegetarian almost right around that same time because we went on vacation and went fishing and she saw some things happen to the fish. So she went, um, she went vegan or she went vegetarian for animals and I actually started after her, but she is also on no medication and has no symptoms. Oh man, that's man. Okay. And uh, wow, that's amazing. So there's yes. that genetic component, but it goes back to conversations that we've had on the show where even if you inherit a certain genetic marker, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will get whatever disease that marker is for. In right. this case, it right. would be Crohn's disease because you're not doing anything that would basically cause that switch to flip up and say, hey, right. here's your Crohn's symptoms. Um, right. I'm curious. Sometimes when a person will go hardcore with a, a whole food plant-based diet overnight after eating that standard diet for so long, um, there is a little bit of gastrointestinal upset in there. Um, for my wife and I, there was a lot of gas and bloating, maybe even mm -hmm. some cramping there. It was kind of like a, an interesting couple of weeks, um, uh -huh. but then it subsided. But you who was coming into this with a lot of issues to begin with, what was that transition like for you? Were there any of those symptoms? I don't remember. You know, that's, I don't, I didn't have many gastrointestinal symptoms, or if I did, they were a lot less than what I had been going through before. I, you know, lived with left lower quadrant pain. I mean, I just always felt like I was in pain if I was going to have a, so this, if I did have uncomfortableness, it was probably a lot less than what I was having before, because I don't really have any, you know, memory of that being <laughs> so an uncomfortable time. Give us an idea of what your diet is like today. 
Um, so you want to like a day? Well, I mostly eat just fresh fruits, vegetables, a lot of um, beans. I make my own hummus every, usually every weekend. Um, a lot of potatoes. I like the purple Stokes potatoes, nuts, seeds, uh, quinoa, black rice. So basically just all natural foods. I do the no oil. Um, so it's whole food, plant-based, no oil. I try to do no salt. Don't really add that much salt. I don't, I am not a low fat person. So I will put like in my hummus, I put tahini and I'll eat peanut butter. I eat a lot of nuts, but I just don't eat. I don't add oil when I'm cooking. You can use vegetable broth or peanut butter. It, so personally, how I'm feeling about whole food plant-based is everything we put in our mouth, it's an opportunity to eat phytonutrients. It's an opportunity to nourish our body. And so when you're using oil, you're using these calories that actually don't have nutrition. And so it's okay to use peanut butter in your rice if you want it to have, or you, so I do things like that. You can use cashew butter, you can put things in your food if you want it to have a different taste or you need oil for cooking, but I just don't use oil. Did you say peanut butter in your rice? Yeah. So it makes it, I, you, you can put peanut butter in your rice and then, and it's like a sesame peanut. Um, you can have vegetables. It's like a sesame peanut Asian dish. Oh, I've it tastes of... really good. Like, you yeah. know, you can put tofu in it and I do eat a lot of tofu too. in tempeh. I usually, um, I, I will make four pounds of tofu. I cut it, spice it, bake it, and then put it in plastic bags in my freezer and add it to my lunch when I need it. Yeah, I thought, I've heard of um, something similar with, with uh, sesame butter uh, using uh, noodles, and that's kind of an Asian thing—a cold sesame noodle dish—and right. that's delicious. But now you're applying that to rice, and I'm like, I think I know what's for dinner tonight. Like yeah. that—that that just sounds amazing to me. And I love your philosophy also about making sure that every calorie, you know, has a purpose. Essentially, that's the right. way that I interpreted what it was that you said. Um, because right. there are nutrients right. that come with peanut butter that you won't find in any sort of oil. So right. um, that's that's pretty cool as well. Um, give us an example, though. It, like, walk me through what you have had today, except for the peanut butter rice. I don't know if you've <laughs> had that today or not, but not I yet. think that really the viewers, the listeners, the exam roomies um, are going to be curious. Like, okay, well, give us the exact menu. What was for breakfast? What okay. was for lunch? So I am a grazer, and I was off work today. So I start my day with two Brazil nuts because they have selenium in them. And I try to get my daily selenium as well as raisins. And I had an apple and I do drink coffee with almond milk. So it was my breakfast. Um, for lunch, I made a big bowl of, um, I put black rice with multiple vegetables, edamame. I keep, as I said, my tofu in the refrigerator, in the freezer. And then I add that, I cook that in the microwave. So lots of vegetables and rice. And then I add my homemade um, hummus on top. Talk to us about that hummus recipe. Is there, I know you said that there's some tahini in there. You throw some uh, lemon juice in there. Does it have some yeah. zest? So what I do is I, hummus was what got me off of cheese. I ate so much cheese. So even though I was not a big meat eater, I, I ate vegetables, but I would pour Parmesan cheese on my vegetables. I I ate more cheese than probably most people do. And, and so I put cheese on my salad, cheese on everything. And so I thought, how am I going to, how am I going to not eat cheese? So I started making hummus and I just put hummus on everything. And 
It could be, you know, it lightens up your salad. You can put it on your vegetables. So I just make, it's about three. You can make your, I also, I cook everything as much as I can. I buy everything organic. Um, I also think just me personally that um, Roundup and everything you're putting on your food can't be good for you. So I try, you know, if everything, I try, you know, I'm probably 80% organic in my home. I, to me, it's worth it to spend money on that. Just that's how I feel. You know, I'm not eating a steak, so I'm going to buy organic everything. There you go. I'm not mm -hmm. eating steak, so I'm going to buy organic everything. That should yes. be a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so, so my hummus recipe, do you want to know it? It's just oh, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I just add about, um, sometimes I make the um, chickpeas in my Instapot and sometimes I'll use canned. So it's about three cups of, um, three cups of chickpeas along with the, the juice it's in if you make them in your Instapot. And then I just add like four tablespoons of tahini. I don't really have a recipe. I uh, squeeze a lemon and I add, oh, this is another thing. So I add turmeric, smoked paprika, garlic, onion, pepper. So another thing I did once I became whole food plant-based is I use so many spices because I also feel somewhat that spices are also full of phytonutrients. So I put, um, you know, I, even when I go on vacation, I take my shakers of smoked paprika and uh, turmeric with me, but I use anything you can put on cinnamon. They say there are medicinal values in everything and I feel like it can't hurt you. So I am a big believer in a lot of different spices. That sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty daggone good. I like the idea of taking spices with you too. Um, yes. Especially, I mean, you, you got the big one in there, you got turmeric in there. So yeah. um, I, I think that you're good to go. Um, you mentioned that your daughter now uh, gravitated toward vegetarian, uh, vegetarianism. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyone else in your family taking meat and dairy off of the table? Yeah. So my daughter is 25 and she, she did it because of her Crohn's and she's healthy. And then my son, I believe it was in about 2018 or 19. He also became whole food plant-based. He's probably 90% when he goes out to dinner with friends or, you know, whole, whole order um, a regular meal. But he did it. He said, because he studied abroad in Hong Kong and he noticed he didn't, he had the, you know, he said he never knew what actually type of meat he was eating, which made him nervous. And so he noticed that when he went um, plant-based that he had, you know, teenage acne, his acne disappeared. And he, so he, he said he did it to clear up his face. He stopped all milk products and meat for the most part. And I think he saw me doing it at home also. So now he's great. He'll text me pictures. He, he lives in an apartment downtown, but he'll text me pictures. I thought you'd like to know what I'm having for lunch. And he'll make a big, you know, plate of just whole food, plant-based foods. So He's also into it. That's great. That's great. Mm -hmm. And I guess my final question for you is this. You mentioned that you kind of had this woman who you looked up to um, when you were a, a young uh, doctor uh, who had ulcerative colitis. Has it dawned on you that you may now be that inspiration for someone else? It has. Actually, originally when my daughter was diagnosed, I told her, I would like you to go to meetings to find a role model. Someone, you know, will help you. Like, this woman helped me and she said, mom, you're my role model. So uh -huh. since then I have actually been, that's when I actually became much more open about my ulcerative colitis because I feel like I can help people. I have um, a friend at work, her um, daughter was diagnosed and I'm very open. I just started talking to people about it. I never even told people I worked with that I had this um, because it was just something I didn't 
really want to be how I was defined. Right. I wanted to be defined as who I was and not this disease. So I, I personally wasn't, you know, didn't talk to people much about it. But yes, I would like now for everyone. I mean, I just realized, you know, I think you may have asked me or people ask me, is it hard? Do you need willpower? And I need no willpower to do this because I feel like, A, I feel healthy. So it feels enjoyable. Every time I eat, I sometimes think, oh, this is so nourishing. I'm helping my body. And I really do think that. And I feel like we should all have more nutrition courses, whether it's in high school or you know, college, medical school. I think it's something that's really undervalued um, in all schools. No doubt about it. And I mean, the fact of the matter is this. I mean, you look great. You sound like you're feeling great. Uh, haven't had a flare up and gosh, only knows how long. And now you're you're leading the way for your daughter and plenty of others as well. And now with thousands of people uh, listening and watching the show today. So I think you are well on your way to doing something quite spectacular, Debbie. Quite spectacular indeed. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope if I can just help one or two people, I'm happy. But the more I can help, the better. I think it's such an easy thing to try it and see if it could work for you. I think you're going to help out more than one or two today. (laughs) Just a sneaking suspicion. Thanks so much for being here, Debbie. Okay. Thank you, Chuck. Can you imagine having to go to the bathroom 20 times a day or more like Debbie did? What type of life is that? Over the course of the years that Debbie was struggling, if you add all of that time up that she spent in the bathroom, we're probably talking about days and days and maybe weeks. Can you even have a life if you're spending all that time in there? I'm so glad that she was able to find some relief. There's one more stat that I want to share with you today. Back in 2014, the average cost to treat ulcerative colitis in the hospital was more than $13,000. $13,000. So if you implement or you try the things that Dr. B was talking about today and you try to follow in Debbie's footsteps, who knows? Maybe you can save all of that money, save all of that time and anguish by changing your diet. And if you're skeptical, that's okay. There is no sure thing. So skepticism is okay. But just give it a try and see because you really have nothing to lose and only your health to gain. And we have some great resources for you. Of course, you have the fiber-fueled cookbook from Dr. Bolsowitz that's coming out. And there's also the Physicians Committee's 21-Day Vegan Kickstart app. And that baby lays out a three-week plan for you to reclaim your health. And it is available for both Android and Apple iPhones. You can find it in the App Store or in Google Play, or you can visit pcrm.org slash kickstart. Highly recommend this thing. It will get your health back on track. And again, please don't forget to vote for the exam room. It is up for Vegan Podcast of the Year by Veg News. If you can head over to their website, there's a link to cast your ballot right now in the show notes. We are on page six of the voting, category 56. Go ahead and cast your vote and give us some support here 
at the exam room podcast so we can continue to make the world a healthier place. And what an honor it is just to be nominated. That's so cool. But for today, that is all the time that we have. I want to say thank you one more time to my guests who are just extraordinary. Of course, Dr. Will Bolsowitz for being here and Debbie, who is a beacon of light for the millions struggling with ulcerative colitis. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.